Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, this morning we're going to look at verses 10 through 18. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18, please give your full attention to the word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The 17th century has been called the century of genius, and that's because of the many scientific advancements that were achieved during that century. These scientific advancements changed the way we view the universe, the way we understand life. It's the century when Galileo and Isaac Newton and Johannes Kepler lived. It was a time of life-changing discoveries about the law of gravity, the laws of planetary motion. It was the beginning of microbiology and cell biology. There were two inventions that so greatly increased our ability to understand the universe. The first invention of the 17th century was the microscope, which opened up to us the unseen world that is too small to see with our physical eyes. The other great invention of the 17th century was the telescope, which gave us the ability to see the unseen world in space, things that are far away, too far away, for our physical eyes to see unaided. It's hard to imagine what life would be like before we were given the ability to see beyond what we can see with our unaided eyes. Last month, during our Advent series, Preparing for Christmas, we studied Hebrews 11. And we kept going back to that definition of faith that's in verse 1 of Hebrews 11. It says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. To be certain of what we do not see is an incredible privilege and power. Human beings have a deep, innate sense that there's more to reality than what we can see with our physical eyes. 
that there is some kind of spiritual reality out there. Just a couple of years ago, they did a study that showed that only 3% of Americans would call themselves atheists, which indicates that the vast majority of humanity senses that what we can see with our physical eyes, what we can touch, what we can taste, that's not all of reality. There's something beyond that reality. Beyond the telescopic world, which is too far away to see, and the microscopic world, which is too small to see with our physical eyes, there is a spiritual world that you need faith in order to see. God's word and faith in God's word is how we see this unseen reality. Paul closes this letter to his Ephesians at the end of chapter 6 with a rousing call to believers to be watchful and alert against the spiritual dangers that are out there. That we, as we live our, you know, I'll speak for myself, but most of us in the room, we live pretty mundane lives. And as we go about our lives day in and day out, we are surrounded with a spiritual reality that is full of deadly dangers. We've been saying over and over that as you look at the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters are all about the gospel, the eternal truths about the Son of God, who he is, why he came to earth, and what he accomplished for us that means our eternal salvation. That's the first three chapters, the theology of the gospel. And then the last three chapters that we've been looking at in verses 4, 5, and 6, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, are about how we live in light of the gospel. If these things are true, then how are we going to live every day of our lives? And we've talked about what it means to daily repent of sin. What it means to love our neighbors what it means to work hard, to be diligent, to worship together, and to love and serve our families. But when we only see with our physical eyes, we are in great danger because there is a powerful spiritual enemy surrounding us, seeking to destroy us. This is a call to battle. It's interesting that as Paul talks about all the normal, everyday, unspectacular parts of life, he ends it with a call to battle. As I read this passage, I like to think of William Wallace riding his horse in his kilt with his face painted in front of the Scots armies, saying, they may take our freedom, but they will never take our lives. That's the spirit, that's the kind of energy that Paul intends to have as he shares these last words to us in Ephesians. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And in a few moments, we're going to talk a little bit about what that means to be strong in the Lord. But first, notice that Paul wants us to know before he talks about how we respond to it, these spiritual dangers that are all around us, these spiritual powers that seek to destroy us, he begins by saying we need to know the power of our enemy. There's an ancient Chinese military manual you've probably heard of called The Art of War. 
It says, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. And that's true for us as Christians. Knowing your enemy is so much more challenging when he's unseen. In verse 12, Paul says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and heavenly places. Again, human beings have this innate sense of the spiritual realm, and they have an innate sense of evil. When you watch the news and you hear about these horrible atrocities that human beings commit against one another, even the newscasters tend to not use words like, oh, that's wrong or that's bad. What they, the words they use over and over is, this is evil. And to say something is evil is to allude to the fact that there's something spiritual, supernatural, something spiritual behind this. Evil is real. And so philosophically, we have to ask the question, is this evil in the spiritual realm, is it impersonal or is it personal? Eastern religions and Star Wars would say it's impersonal. But the Bible says that it is personal. There is a person behind the evil that we see in this world. In verse 11, Paul attributes this evil to the schemes of the devil. So let's take a moment just to review what the Bible teaches us about this spiritual person that the Bible calls the devil, which means accuser, or Satan, which means adversary. Before God created the physical universe, before he created the universe, he created immaterial spiritual beings that we call angels, that the Bible calls angels. One of these angels, probably a high-ranking angel, named Satan, led, I'm sure he wasn't named that at the time, since his name means adversary, but this high-ranking angel led a rebellion against God. And he and those who followed him were cast out of the presence of God and condemned. After God created the physical universe, after he created Adam and Eve in his own image, Satan deceived and seduced Adam and Eve into joining him in his rebellion against God. And since then, this created world has been under Satan's reign. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, it says, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. This is the reality of physical existence of the universe after what we call the fall, the sin, the rebellion of Adam and Eve. It's God's curse upon creation. It's God's curse upon humanity. Satan has power. It's a limited power but he has power over this fallen world, this present darkness, as Paul calls it here in Ephesians 6. Jesus, three times in the book of John, 
John chapter 12, John chapter 14, John chapter 16, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he offered Jesus, if Jesus would join him in his rebellion against God, he said, if you will kneel to me, if you call me Lord, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. And it was a genuine offer in a limited sense because God, under the curse, had allowed Satan to be the ruler of this world. Back in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 2, Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So, bottom line, as we look at what the Bible teaches us about evil, the source of evil, the power over evil, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you have to believe in the devil. I don't care how unpopular it is among your friends and co-workers and neighbors, you must believe in the devil. Jesus Christ spoke often of the devil, and Jesus Christ cast out demons. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you better deal with the fact that the devil exists and he's powerful and he is out to deceive and destroy you. Well, Paul begins to address here, what is it that motivates the devil? What's his goal? What's he after? Well, according to scripture, he's after you. He's after all human beings, but particularly he's after those who name the name of Christ and follow him. And Revelation 12, I love Revelation 12. There's so much about Revelation that is difficult to interpret and understand, but Revelation 12 is a, is a, a fantastic picture of the spiritual war that is going on even while you and I live our mundane lives in this fallen world. It uses prophetic imagery to describe this spiritual war that's going on behind the scenes, the things that are unseen but are real. And it begins by portraying how Satan, the dragon in Revelation 12, sought to destroy the child that was born from God. It portrays how Satan's efforts to destroy Christ were thwarted by the resurrection and the ascension of the right hand of God. But then it goes on to say, well, what is, what's, what's the truth in the spiritual realm, in the spiritual war, since Christ has been raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God? What is the reality? It says in verse 12 of Revelation 12, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has gone down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. What is it that drives the devil? What gets the devil up in the morning to go out and attack you? It's wrath, anger. He's angry. In 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The devil hates God. The devil hates the redeemed people of God. He hates what God has done to redeem us. You and I have never seen pure, unadulterated hatred. 
All the hatred you see among humanity is tempered by the common grace of God, the restraining grace of God. But with the devil, there is no restraint. Pure, unadulterated hatred of God and his people. That's what motivates him. And when, think about it, among human beings, among the people you know, when anger is unresolved or unsatisfied and it's unrestrained, what does it become? Bitterness. And bitterness is the most destructive force in any soul. If anger is allowed to run its course and bitterness is allowed to run its course, human beings become psychopathic. Out to destroy everyone around them. And that's what motivates the devil. In verse 11, it talks about the devil's schemes. So what, what's his strategy? What are his schemes? What, what does he try to do? When you hear the word scheme, you think of deception, don't you? If you're scheming, you're seeking to deceive, usually. And that is his main weapon. That's his main strategy. He works subtly. And he works quietly. He doesn't want to draw attention to himself. As real and as powerful he is as he is, it is very rare to come across someone who actually worships Satan, who actually outwardly serves Satan. Because that's not his main strategy. His main strategy is not to reveal himself, but to deceive us. He twists the truth so gradually that you don't realize that ultimately he's contradicting the truth and leading you away from it. In John 8, Jesus said of the devil, there is no truth in him. He is a liar and the father of lies. In Revelation 12, again in verse 9, it calls Satan the deceiver of the whole world. Remember how he seduced and led Adam and Eve astray. He didn't outright lie to them. He twisted the truth. He caused Eve to question God's word. He said, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? God did not say that. God said they were not allowed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He twisted the truth and caused them to doubt God's goodness. And he lied to them. He gave them a false promise. He, he, he said to them, you shall become like God if you eat of the fruit. As he did then, he still does. He twists God's word by taking, a, taking away from it or adding to it. That's the one thing the scriptures tell us over and over not to do. Don't add to God's word and don't take away from it. And Satan does it all the time in order to deceive us, to lead us away from the truth, and therefore to lead us away from God. When Satan tempted Jesus, what did he do? He quoted God's word to Jesus. But he took it out of context and he twisted it. That's what false prophets do. That's what false teachers do. That's what false preachers do, even as we speak today. 
So many so-called preachers of the word are standing in pulpits today, twisting the word of God and deceiving people and leading them actually astray from truth and astray from God. If you know the Babylon Bee, it's a satirical site. It's the Christian version of the onion. There was a headline in the Babylon Bee this week that said, Missionary travels to Joel Osteen's church to reach people who have never heard about Jesus. The article goes on to say, Lakewood Church, that mega church, is believed to be among the largest unreached people groups in the United States. Now, I don't honestly like to name names when it comes to Joel Osteen or Lakewood Church. But until the true church of Jesus Christ in America starts naming false preachers and false prophets, we are not going to see the kind of revival that we pray for. It's funny, but it's sad, and it's true that some of the most devilish deceptions are being perpetrated in groups that are called churches that are actually synagogues of Satan. Satan is intelligent, and he's powerful. We are weak and helpless in our flesh. But remember this, Satan is a fallen angel. He is a created being. He is not the equal of God, not by any stretch. Anything that he does is only because God in his sovereign and wise plan has allowed it to happen. Like Job, there is a hedge of protection around every true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan can afflict us in many ways. He can tempt us in many ways, but only to the point that Christ allows it. And so Paul's main point in this last section is to not cause us to cower in fear before this powerful, deceptive being called Satan, his point is, we are protected by the means that God has given to us. We have the protection of the Lord. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Verse 13, take up, all, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. That's the call. You wage war every day. You go to battle spiritually every day. And your goal is to stand firm in the faith. To stand firm in the Lord. To stand firm is to fight and continue fighting while under attack and not give ground. We live every day in enemy territory because this is a fallen world and Satan is, under God's sovereignty, the ruler of this fallen world. And as was quoted earlier in our service in James 4, 7, it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's what it means to win the battle, is to resist the devil and if you do, he will flee. Paul, in this last section, draws upon a very familiar visual image for the Ephesian people, the Ephesian Christians, the armor of a Roman soldier. 
He chooses six parts of a Roman protective armor and weapon to illustrate the spiritual protections that we have by faith. Well, he, does, he mentions prayer, and I'm not going to withhold comment on prayer. It's actually interesting that he doesn't connect prayer to an article of a soldier's armor. But we're going to take prayer, we're going to deal with prayer at the end of the chapter next week. But these other elements of armor that he refers to illustrate the protections that God has given to us, provided for us through Christ. Now, I've heard a lot of fanciful and speculative interpretations of how these pieces of armor um, protect us. I don't think Paul intends for us to get into that kind of detail. It's kind of like Jesus' parables. You don't want to get too caught up in the details and miss the main point. And so what, as I look at these six pieces of armor that he mentions here, I see three major provisions that God has given us to protect us from the attacks of the evil one. The first one is truth. He says, put on, fasten on the belt of truth and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. If Satan's primary attack is deception, lies, then what is our primary defense but the truth? The truth of God's word. It's what we fight back with. It is light versus darkness. That's what this whole war is about. The light of truth against the darkness of lies and deception. We are truth tellers. How many times in the book of Ephesians, when he talks, particularly in chapter 4, he talks about what life we are to live now in light of the gospel. He says, we are to speak the truth in love. We are truth tellers. When Satan tempted Jesus by misquoting and twisting God's word, how did Jesus respond? He quoted God's word back at him, but with the correct interpretation. And that's what's so important. If you're going to stand firm in the midst of the spiritual battles that you're going to face day in and day out, you need to not only be able to quote the word, but interpret it correctly. Then you will be skillful in wielding the sword of the spirit. And what happened when Jesus corrected Satan's misinterpretation of God's word and quoted it correctly? What happened? Satan fled. Resist him, and he will flee from you, as James said. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We are spiritually invincible when we trust God's word. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, Paul says, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's the power of this. Know this, understand this, and use it 
every day in your spiritual battles. That is the first protection that God has given us, and a primary one, a foundational one, the Word of God. The strength of any church is in its submission to and proclamation of the Word of God. This church is powerful. It's not because of any of us. It's because of this. This is why this church is powerful. Because it's built upon and submits to and proclaims the word of God. And that's where our power lies. And don't ever forget it. The second protection that the Lord has given to us is the assurance of salvation. Salvation but when it comes to day-to-day -day living, we need to have the assurance of our salvation in order to stand firm against the attacks of the devil. Paul talks about the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate in Roman armor was the metal that protected from the hips to the neck, the upper part of the body, where all of the vital organs are except for the head. But then Paul adds that God gives us the helmet of salvation. Again, the metal that protects the brain, probably the most important vital organ of the body. Breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. Being sure that you are righteous in the sight of God is a spiritual strength. Righteousness is the state of being perfect in thought, word, and deed. And we possess that by faith alone. Because we are robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what salvation gives to us, is the status of being perfect in thought, word, and deed before a holy God. Because Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, added to his divine nature a human nature, he became man. And as a man... He lived a perfect life in thought, word, and deed. And then he went to the cross by God's sovereign plan. And he died on the cross and bore the punishment that your sins deserve, that my sins deserve. He bore it on the cross and paid the penalty in full so that we could be forgiven. But we are not only forgiven for all our many sins in thought, word, and deed. We are given the gift of Christ's righteousness. He takes our sin, he gives us his righteousness. We have the breastplate of the righteousness of Christ. And as we wear the breastplate of righteousness, the robe of Christ's righteousness, the Holy Spirit begins to transform us, to make us righteous gradually over the course of our lives, and even that lived out righteousness, that increase in righteousness becomes an increasing protection from the attacks of the, of the evil one. The helmet of salvation. Given the gift of righteousness and transformed by the spirit into the image of Christ, that is our protection. And the more sure we are of that, the more firm we will stand when we are attacked by the evil one. He mentions shoes. Again, under the idea of assurance of salvation, he says the shoes which are the readiness given by the gospel of peace. 
I didn't know this until this week. I never really dug into the shoes before. But it's interesting. The Roman soldiers did have uh, the, you know, these were the, uh, the Michael Jordan shoes of, of warriors of that day. These were the best. They were half boots, and they had heavy soles that were, had studs in them. And the reason for the studs and the heavy soles was so that when they were in hand-to-hand combat, they had better traction than their enemies. You see why Paul says the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace causes you to stand firm when you're in hand-to-hand combat with the devil. The gospel of peace. The gospel, the saving work of Christ, which has given you, a sinner, peace with God. And because God, he, he, the, the Holy Spirit has given you this peace with God through the gospel, therefore you have this inner peace, no matter how much turmoil and chaos is going on in your life around you. I love this quote from John Stott on this passage. Stott says, Wobbly Christians who have no firm foothold in Christ are an easy prey for the devil. The way to stand firm under attack is to rest in the gospel of peace with God through Christ. So, we are given truth, we are given assurance of salvation, this leads to the last gift that we are given to protect us, which is faith itself. We talked about faith all last month. Faith is given to protect us from the evil one. He says in verse 16, take the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, again, if you want to get the, the, the uh, visual picture right, when Paul talks about a Roman shield, he's not talking about one of those round ones we think about like medieval knights used, they put on their arm. These are, Roman shields were four feet high and two and a half feet wide. And they were big enough so that if a soldier crouched down behind it, his whole body was protected. And the time when they would use those shields not most was not in hand-to-hand combat, but when the enemy was shooting arrows at them. And often those arrows were dipped in pitch and then lit on fire, and that's what Paul's alluding to. Stand behind your shield so that the shield can quench the flaming arrows of the evil one when they're launched against you. That shield... That spiritual shield that we wield day in and day out is our daily faith. Walking daily by faith in the gospel, in the word of God, we extinguish the devil's flaming darts, Paul calls them. That's his temptations. He's always firing temptation at us. And what is he tempting us to do? He's tempting us to doubt God's word. He's tempting us to believe his false promises. No matter what you're tempted to do, whether it's a sexual sin or a financial sin or a relationship sin, no matter what kind of sin that he's tempting you to, the bottom line, that's what he wants, is for you to doubt God's goodness and doubt God's word and to believe his false promises. And it is your faith Faith in what this book teaches that protects you every day. That's why you need to start your day in the Word of God. You need to start your day. Don't 
you know, it's my, it sounds so mundane. You need to read your Bible and pray every day. It sounds so mundane, doesn't it? That is how you prepare for spiritual battle. You set the tone for your day by going to the Word of God first. And we'll talk about prayer next week and how important it is. In John chapter 5, verse, uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, it says, This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Not just the faith that saved you in the beginning, but the faith that sustains you every day of your life by the power of the Word and the Spirit. I hope you get my point this morning. We are at war. Every day we are at war. And the enemy is someone that we can only see by faith in what God reveals to us about what is true in the spiritual realm. We must respect the power of our enemy. And we must prepare accordingly. But we must not fear him. Because Christ has already defeated him. He knows his time is short. He knows his destruction is coming. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You want to know what spiritual reality looks like? Go back to Ephesians chapter 1, where it speaks about God the Father raising Christ from the dead. It says, When he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, even the name of Satan. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 says, At the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. The accuser has been silenced because Satan has nothing more to accuse you of because Christ has paid for your sins. The war is over. D-Day has happened. V-E Day is coming soon. We're just waiting for the fighting to end and we're doing the mop-up work. In Revelation... Again, Revelation chapter 12. Hear these words from verses 10 and 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even to death. We defeat Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. They may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom in Christ. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for reminding us of our victory in Christ. We can feel so defeated, and we do still give in to temptation so often. Our faith is still so weak, but our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is in the word of God 
the assurance of our salvation, and the gift of faith that you've given to us. You have put a hedge around us. Satan can torment us. He can temporarily defeat us. But we have already won the victory in Christ. Help us to go forth and do battle with confidence, not in ourselves, not in the flesh, but in the gospel of Jesus Christ and his abiding presence with us, protecting us, delivering us. Thank you that we are certain of what we cannot see, this victory in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.